Friends, welcome back to the podcast. We've got another great episode for you today. But before we get started with content, we want to remind you who we are at Stay Fort Designs. We help leaders to get healthy so they can reach sustainable impact. You're going to continue to hear us say that you don't have to burn out, flame out, or have a moral failure if you are going to live and lead at a high capacity. Friends, we are coaches here at Stay Forth. We help leaders to clarify through that coaching. We are hosts. We host experiences that help leaders of all kinds, kingdom leaders who love Jesus and are serving in all different facets of culture and society. We help them to replenish, to go away to beautiful places with amazing people to connect and to return back to the life that God has given them. If you're interested in coaching or experiences, you can find more info on how we live out our mission through coaching and experiences over at stayforth.com. Just click on the tab. You can also visit in the show notes below. But friends, I want to tell you about something that we've launched in this last season. We're calling it the Upstream Campaign. There are all kinds of leadership issues that we hear about in the news. And frankly, there's a whole lot that you don't hear about because there's smaller churches there are smaller leadership organizations, teams, or nonprofits that will never make the news. But there is an epidemic of burnout, even mental health, that is upon us right now. And we are concerned. We lean in through that concern to help leaders of all different facets. Again, whether you are a mom or a CEO, a dad, or someone who's leading a podcast, an online influencer, a coach yourself, you name it. If you have kingdom influence, we want to help you. But we don't just want to help you right now. We actually want to go upstream with you. Desmond Tutu has a quote. He says, if all the bodies are falling in the river, at some point, we've got to go upstream and figure out why all the bodies are falling in the river. Friends, there is leadership carnage today. Many of our systems and structures, the hustle culture, our culture saying drive, do more, push harder, just isn't going to do it. Jesus presents this abundant life that is actually about abiding. How do we abide in Christ? How do we abide as leaders who are called to really significant things? We are not called to easy work, but the question is, how do we do that for the long haul and live and lead as God has designed us? And so we have launched the Upstream Campaign to help scholarship and subsidize leaders to be able to get coaching and experiences that helps them live and lead well for the long haul for free or for a discounted rate. Friends, we are boldly asking listeners of this podcast to consider giving. And you can give as little as $10 a month to help. Maybe it's a leader who you know, or maybe it's a leader you will never meet to get healthy, to reach more impact. That giving goes directly to subsidize or to scholarship leaders for coaching to help them clarify, experiences to help them replenish, We want leaders to be able to be as healthy as they can be, to do what God has designed them to do so they can be as effective as possible in that. Friends, we are calling you into this mission with us to join the Upstream Campaign, to give so that we can continue to handle and steward the influence God has brought to us, these leaders that are coming to us, people who need coaching, who need experiences, and who are at risk. They may not be able to afford this, that's where you come in. We're asking you to help fund these leaders through coaching and experiences when they can't afford it. Will you come upstream with us to help at-risk ministry leaders receive coaching and experiences 
Friends, will you join the mission to help leaders get healthy and reach more impact? You can just head on over to stayforth.com backslash upstream. That's S-T-A-Y-F-O-R-T-H dot com backslash upstream. Go ahead and take a look at that, what we've lined out, and we invite you to give starting at $10 a month to help at-risk ministry leaders get healthy and reach more impact. Now, on to this episode of the podcast. Well, Erwin, welcome to the podcast and congrats on another book. Hey, thank you so much, Alan. It's good to be here with you. Is this number nine for you? I think it's book number 10. But book number I, 10. I don't always uh, spend time counting them. <laughs> <laughs> How did this one feel different? Uh, well, every book feels really unique and it has its own difference. But I think uh, just to begin with, I've never written a book about Jesus. Uh, always been really apprehensive. I mean, there's a great book written about Jesus. It's called the Bible. And <laughs> I didn't really want to compete with that book. And, um, and I, I felt like writing a book about Jesus was uh, an extremely sacred act. So this book felt different because it was about Jesus, but it was also about something that I've been really fascinated by all my life, and that's really the phenomenon of genius. And so I was able to really bring two huge themes in my life. Uh, the pursuit of understanding of human genius, human capacity, human creativity, imagination, innovation, and the effect of the, the person of Jesus in a person's life. And then asking the question, does Jesus, does Jesus qualify as a historical genius if you remove from him all um, the story of divinity? Mm. It's been a really fascinating, I think, journey for me. Mm. I am fascinated with genius as well. I wrote a book on genius called Everyone's a Genius. Actually, sent you a copy and sharpie down the front of it. I don't know if you ever saw this or got this, that without the artisan soul, I would not have written this book. And I truly... Oh, I do remember you telling that. me that without the artisan soul, you would have not have written the book. Yeah. Without the artisan soul, I, I needed that, right? Because I don't think we talk enough about it, right? So you're fascinated by human potential, right? Like that's always been a thing. Fascinated yeah, by and Jesus. Really in, yeah. In the artisan soul, I, I, I make an argument that every human being is intrinsically creative, that every human being is intrinsically uh, born a genius. And, uh, and, and it really goes back to even when I wrote An Unstoppable Force 20 years ago. It's one of the basic frameworks that um, I use for character transformation because so many times when we focus on transformation, we only focus on all the things we need to stop doing rather than how to reclaim the capacity of being created in the image of God. So yeah, it's, it's been a, a driving theme uh, throughout my life, throughout my books. But this one is very specific in terms of, of the genius of Jesus and, um, and what, what aspect of Jesus's genius is actually transferable. Mm. Before we dive into that collision of those, I want to talk about reality. Your bio reads like most others until this line, his singular intention is to violate our view of reality. Pretty, pretty standard bio there. So First of all, Erwin, what do you mean by that? Uh, exactly what that statement says. I, I, I had to decide years ago why I would travel. Like, why, why travel and speak if um, someone else can do it? And, and it wasn't really enough of a motive for me to go to inspire people to, or to go and encourage people. Or um, I, I didn't really want to go someplace to get the amens. 
<laughs> Sorry. And I didn't want to go someplace just to get the amens. And I felt like if my content was amen content, I shouldn't travel. My content needs to be, I'm not sure if that's true content. My content <laughs> needs to be, is this right content? Is this mm. true content? It needs to be uh, a violation of the way that we see things in the status quo so that by changing the way a person sees reality, I can change the way that they experience life. Mm. So what are the different reactions you get when you violate people's view of reality? Well, for most of my life as a follower of Christ, I've been pretty much considered a heretic. So <laughs> I think that that is a pretty straightforward reaction, as you probably know, Alan, about my own life <laughs> and my life story. And so I've always lived on the fringes. Um, and, and I've accepted the fact that so many things that um, I wrote or said 20 years ago or 30 years ago are now common convictions in the Christian faith. And, and that when you, you press people into something new, they're going to feel, in a sense, violated. They're going to feel like their comfort zone, their understanding of reality, their convictions or beliefs are going to be threatened. But the only way you can help people to see things in a new way, in an elevated way, is to, um, is to deconstruct what they think is already true. Mm. And that's so much of what you're doing with Battle Ready with you and Aaron, right? It's so true. Uh, uh, my son Aaron and I have a, a podcast called Battle Ready, and we just pretty much talk about everything that's happening in the world, and we come at it from every angle. And um, you know, we we take the 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 super conservative, the super liberal, everything in between, and just blow up every false assumption we can. And I I I think people are not sure what our actual positions are sometimes. And because we're really not trying to convince you to think like us, we're trying to convince you to think. And let's be real. Sometimes Aaron doesn't know what his position is on certain things and you call him on it. And I just, I, I love it because you guys are talking it out as father and son. It's become one of my favorite podcasts. You guys are doing a great job of, okay, Mike's on, I guess we should chat now. And, yeah, and actually what's interesting is that so oftentimes Aaron calls me out because I'm trying to be so diplomatic that it makes him mad. <laughs> He's like, I know <laughs> what you think. You need, to, you need to say. Yeah, so a lot of times he knows I'm just, I'm just trying to be super diplomatic. And he just says, hey, look, just, you know. It's good. Uh, just drop the bomb. Just That's tell good. us what you really think. If reality violations happening in there. But, I mean, you guys will be talking about the Clippers and then parenting. And then I think Aaron cried talking about donuts one time at Mosaic. I mean, it was like you're just talking <laughs> about, about life. Um, in that and and that violation of reality, you said the word deconstruction that we're all deconstructing in so many different ways um, right now as these things come at us. How is that connected? That that violation of reality that Jesus did to the genius that you see in him. Well, I mean, obviously Jesus violated the view of reality um, among all the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the teachers of the law, those who were uh, even when he was twelve years old, those who were at the temple. Uh, were um, confounded by his questions and, and amazed by his answers. And I think what's interesting is his answers were actually just questions. And Jesus just kept pressing into their, um, their held convictions, you know, about the Sabbath, about what is right in the mind of God, like what, what really are the, the commandments that matter to God. Um, you know, and... And you, you listen to Jesus' conversations in the world in which he lived. 
And they were so offended by the way he saw reality that they felt it was necessary to kill him. Because his view of reality basically um, became a, uh, an indictment on their hypocrisy. And, and I think that's a part of the power of who Jesus is, is that um, he, he absolutely questioned the status quo. He did not allow the commonly held convictions to limit uh, his understanding of who God was. Uh, and I think if a person looks objectively at the life and person and teachings of Jesus, you have to really admire him for being so countercultural, so iconoclastic, and, uh, and so heretical. Mm. So when did these two fascinations, I mean, take me back to the moment of the fascination of, of God and, and the person of Jesus, and then genius or human potential, when did they collide? Yeah, during the pandemic and during the quarantine, I was in my back house where I do a lot of my uh, writing and work, and, um, and, I, and I started having this conversation with myself, which I, I do a lot. A lot of times I just allow conversations to kind of form in my mind, and I hear both arguments, and I'm not really sure which one I am as I'm listening. And, and a part of me had this thought, um, how strange it is that my life has been completely changed by someone who lived 2,000 years ago. How, how odd it is that my life revolves around this one person, Jesus, who lived 2,000 years ago. And, and, and then I, I, I kind of pressed in and I thought, well, that makes sense if Jesus is God. But what if he isn't God? If he isn't God, then my life has been changed by the idea of Jesus. And, and that, for me, was incredibly like um, destabilizing a thought. That's almost more extraordinary, that your life could be changed by an idea a human being encompassed 2,000 years ago. So I began pressing in around the idea of Jesus. It, it almost like just, just pushing off the shelf my, my conviction, my belief that he's the Son of God, that he is the Savior of the world, that he is God. And, and then just asking the question, what is this idea of Jesus that has changed me so dramatically? And how do you explain the fact, you know, for all the people who say that Jesus is not who we claim to be, for all those who say Jesus is not God, then you have to, like, then accept that the idea of Jesus is so transformative, it has continued to have impact throughout human history, everywhere the message of Jesus goes. And so that's what really drove me to begin thinking about this book. And then I looked at every list I could find over the years of historic geniuses. And, you know, Da Vinci is always in the list. Mozart's pretty much always in the list. Picasso is always in the list. And then you have others, Confucius or Buddha, maybe Gandhi, Mandela, but you never have Jesus. Mm. And, and I started thinking how odd it is that there isn't a singular list of geniuses in history. I mean, you'll have Einstein and Hawkins, and, and, uh, and yet you won't have Jesus. You'll even have Mandela. And I even found a list of geniuses that had Muhammad. But Jesus remains. Mm. Un, really unapproached as a genius. And, and so I started asking the question, well, when you're looking at, at the historical geniuses, what, what, what qualifies a person as a genius? Where, where does that concept come from? How do you identify a genius? And then when you look at it objectively, if you remove all the, uh, the miraculous from the life of Jesus, does Jesus qualify? And, and, and so I wrote the book in my first draft as if I did not believe in Jesus as God. I just wanted to look at him objectively as a historical figure and ask the question, was he a genius? Mm. And if he was, what was his genius? 
Mm. And then later in the later drafts, I went back and reinfused my faith and, uh, and added to that narrative. Uh, and, and that's how the book really formed. Mm. That's such a good subtitle. The man who changed everything. I mean, to start, how could you not call someone a genius that has impacted so many people? And it still is even the idea of, and I can't wait to, to read the whole thing. I had kind of a sneak peek at it. Um, let's talk about power, a hot topic right now. Of course, you've always had an interesting relationship with power. How have we gotten power wrong in the West? Well, I mean, this is an arena where you can see that Jesus does actually change everything because that's a big statement. The man who changed everything. And I would say he changed everything that we don't even understand. He changed, Mm. Yeah, you know, and in our nation right now, in most of the Western world, uh, whether it's the United States or Canada, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, um, you, there's a lot of conversation about um, social justice, about retribution, about reconciliation, about um, about uh, how do you create reparations for past wrongs. Now, this idea that nations should actually care about how they wronged a people they conquered is not a historical concept. It exists because Jesus existed. I mean, I'm telling you, you know, Genghis Khan did not worry about all the people <laughs> he massacred and all the land he took and all the um, yep. groups he, 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 he wiped out from the face of the earth. And, and, you know, Alexander the Great wasn't worrying about how much of the world he conquered, whether it was ethical or right. And the Roman Empire didn't worry about that. And, and even when you look at particular like places in the world, like New Zealand that is working so hard asking, how do we... Um, repair the wrongs we've done toward the Maori. But even if I understand the Maori correctly, they used to travel from island to island, and, and they had a, a cannibalistic narrative in them. They would eat um, the people from their other tribes. But that wasn't in their narrative of how do we repair what we've done to the smaller, weaker tribes that we conquered. It only exists whenever a nation has been influenced by the um, mindset of Jesus. Mm. And then suddenly, power is seen differently. Suddenly, nations are supposed to use power for the good of its citizens. Nations are supposed to use power not to overpower, but to empower. Nations are supposed to use their power to bring justice and equality. The the whole um, tension in our society over over social justice, over Black Lives Matters, um, over slavery, do you realize that all of those are infused by Jesus's impact on our understanding of power. He has literally changed everything when you look at even social structures and political structures, wherever Jesus has gone, we begin asking the question, mm. how do we make right or wrongs? That's not a question nations asked. I mean, years ago when I went to the National Museum in England, I realized that almost everything in the museum belonged to another nation or to another people group. <laughs> and, and I'm like, wait, wait a minute, what, what, where is the British art or where's the British and uh, treasures. And, and it was really everything they'd conquered because mm. the mindset historically was you conquer, you rule, you, you conquer, you take. And, and, and it's only as the mindset and frameworks of Jesus begin to seep and permeate a culture that you begin going, oh, maybe that's not right. You know, maybe slavery was wrong. Maybe, um, uh, maybe destroying the Native American Indians wasn't really uh, ethical. And we need to realize that, that all these questions that we're asking across our society about power uh, have actually been informed by Jesus. 
and and he has changed the way we we even think about basic things like power. Mm, so good, so much more there. What are some surprising areas where we find people living out the genius of Jesus? Well, I mean, I, I think one of the fantastic areas is is the whole issue of, of generosity or philanthropy uh, across the world. Um, you know, with all the problems in the United States, the United States is still one of the most generous cultures in the world. And and it, it's fascinating to me that um, this is a nation that has historically had a culture of, of philanthropy, of generosity, of helping the poor, of helping um, the underprivileged and the outsider. And um, and I think it's really uh, such a beautiful thing that when you're uh, affected by the principles and person of Jesus, that you actually think it's your personal responsibility to make the world better. I mean, if this was just an evolutionary story, why should you care about someone else's poverty? Mm-hmm. Why should you care about someone else's misery? Why should you care about someone else's injustice? Why should you care that someone else doesn't have a home or food? And you know, my, my wife for years has worked on the board for Habitat for Humanity and has helped build houses for families that might never have an opportunity to have a home and has been building a school in Malawi uh, for um, Malawians to have an education to be able to live a better life. Like these kinds of practical applications in life that are expressions of generosity and sacrifice and philanthropy are so rooted in the mindset of Jesus and, uh, and in, in the biblical frameworks that are there. And I think it's really sometimes so unexpected that even people who don't believe in God have some basic principles in their minds, in their lives, that they don't even realize came through the influence of Jesus. Mm. Yeah, so, so true. Um, There are a few areas right now that you feel are crucial for us to rediscover the genius of Jesus? Maybe a couple areas more crucial than the others right now in this moment to rediscover the genius of Jesus. Yeah, I, well, I feel like one area that's significant is empathy. And uh, I, I feel like we have a shift in our culture. And we do have a, a, an incubator, a cultural incubator for narcissism, where people are so focused on, on their own emotions and their own well-being and, and their own uh, betterment. And Empathy isn't about feeling a lot of emotions. I mean, empathy really is about um, being able to, to see life through another person's perspective, build the inside of someone else's soul and know exactly what they're going through. And, mm. and for that person's emotional well-being to be as valuable to you as, as your own. And I write this whole chapter on empathy because I think that empathy is actually the highest form of intelligence, that a lot of people do a lot of damage simply because they don't realize what their words and actions are causing. Yes. And, 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 you know, I, I work with a lot of business leaders. I, I work, I've been working with a group where everyone has to minimally have a business that makes a hundred million dollars a year. And, and one of the things that, that has really struck me is that the dumbest decisions you will ever make will not cost you money. They will cost you people. Hmm. And that we have such a focus in our culture on like IQ and, and intellectual and academic and, and even practical intelligence of how to make money, how to be successful, or, um, or maybe there's a new kind of um, quotient that knows how to have influence through social media. And I think a lot of people have influence intelligence. They know how to maximize social media influence. But what we have is a dissipating intelligence and empathy 
And, um, and I think this is going to be a huge part of our future because of the emotional uh, struggle in our culture. I mean, pandemic and quarantine has elevated suicide rates to um, a historic level and elevated the levels of violence in cities like Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, uh, at a, to a historic level and uh, elevated depression and, um, and drug use to historic levels. And we need to realize that the emotional well-being, the mental health of our society is probably at a historic low, which is kind of extraordinary when you think about the fact that there was a time where people were working in coal mines and people were working on farms 18 hours a day and people were working in factories. And you would think that those people would struggle more with depression and suicide. And yet, um, where we have more freedom and more opportunity, um, we have the highest levels of despair. In our, and I think this is going to be a really critical area. Um, mm. to address how do we find the health that only Jesus can bring to us. Mm. How do you lead and live differently after your cancer battle? I don't think I lead differently after I had cancer. Uh, I think I, I led, I, I, you lead out of who you are. And, um, and I think before I had cancer, I lived my life as if today might be the last day I lived. And after I had cancer, that's the way I've kind of lived my life. And, I try to live my life where the things that are transcendent matter and the things that are eternal matter. And then I try to make decisions that have that kind of impact. I think the tragedy that for many people, though, is that they have to have something so, so tragic like cancer to wake them up and make them more aware of the fragility of life, of the temporary mm -hmm. nature of life on this earth. And I, I don't want people to have to get there before they realize I should really value my life. Mm. And, I, and it's not just about how much you can accomplish. It's about making sure that you find joy and that you enjoy life, that you take time to celebrate the people in your life, that you, um, you, you know, that you value the relationships uh, even above the outcomes and successes that you, mm. you achieve. And, and, and so in that sense, I, would, I feel like my life has been fairly consistent before and after. And I don't even think of myself as a person that had cancer. It's kind of a strange thing. It's, it, it, it isn't really a, a, a life-defining thing for me. Mm. We got to talk about the pandemic. How has your view of reality been violated or disrupted since the pandemic? Yeah, I, 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 you know, I look at it and I think this has been an incredible social experiment. <laughs> if, if you could create a social experiment that says, um, our premise is that human beings would do better without other human beings. And another person would say, well, our counter premise would be, no, human beings only do well when they're with other human beings. How could you create a multi-million um, sample group experiment other than the quarantine? And what's fascinating to me is that we've been quarantined with the belief that the virus is the worst thing that we could get. And what really the quarantine has proven is that no, actually isolation and loneliness is the worst thing a human being can face. It's probably more devastating than the potential of death is the, is the reality of disconnection. And so if anything, it has reaffirmed for me the critical nature of community and how important it is to have relationships and people in, uh, in, in your lives. And you know, people who are deeply connected to the church or connected to a church and to that community, they, they did better than people who did not. I mean, imagine if the only friends you had were at work and now you don't go to work anymore. And they weren't even friends, they were just coworkers or 
Imagine if the only place you met people was at a bar and at a nightclub, and now all those are shut down. For, the, for 18 months, people did not have even the, the levels of superficial engagement that they were used to before. If you, if you didn't have any tight community of people that were extended family, you were desperately alone during the quarantine. And for me, it just um, reinforces the power of deep friendships and, and, and deep community. Mm. Yeah. Couple more, couple more thoughts here. So good. Um, we could go for hours. We better not disruption and innovation. What's the connection between these disruptors and the innovation uh, that we see break into to new areas of culture? Yeah. I wish that everyone moved to innovation when there's disruption, but it just isn't really real. Uh, it's, it's the, it's the aberration that there's innovation in disruption. Most people in disruption actually move toward paralysis and they, they move toward security and safety and comfort. And so they minimize their life to hold on to whatever they can. And so the great challenge in disruption is that most people actually cocoon rather mm. than create. And what ends up happening to disruption though is that it creates a larger gap between those who have and those who do not have. Because what a lot of times people think that, that let's say wealth, they think wealth is the outcome of, of your good luck or, or that you were born into money. But usually wealth is um, the result of the ability to innovate in the middle of disruption. And so what happens in the middle of disruption is that it creates a greater gap between those who cocoon and those who create. And in disruption, the those who create have fewer people competing with them. And that's why in the middle of this pandemic, by the way, there's more wealth than there was before. There, there, there's uh, an unexpected number of people who have really um, thrived during the pandemic. And, and it's because the gap has grown larger while other people um, found their security in taking um, an unemployment check or getting a government check. And, and there's a lot of people who don't want to go back to work. They actually want the government to keep giving them a paycheck to let them stay at home. And what we've had is we've had a massive polarization of those who um, cocoon and those who create. And that's going to be the huge dilemma that we're going to have to face going forward. Yeah, well said. You say this in the genius of Jesus. What would happen if we studied and emulated Jesus, not only through the lens of his divinity, but as a genius who showed us what it means to live fully human? How do we need to become more <laughs> fully human right now? I mean, to me, one great example of that is Mandela. Um, you, you know, when you look at someone who decided to not let prison define him and, and when he came out of prison to bring forgiveness uh, to those who imprisoned him unjustly rather than condemnation and to create a national war, like, it, there, it's such a beautiful nuance that um, I think is directly connected to the influence of Jesus historically. And, and, I, and, I, and I have a sense that people may not even be fully aware of the fact that Jesus affects us in such simple things. Like I know I'm, I was a better father because of my relationship to Jesus. I, I, I didn't, I didn't really have a great example for a father. I never knew my real father. So, you know, if I were going to just keep perpetuating the patterns that were brought to me, it wouldn't have been good. And, um, but my relationship to Jesus um, supplemented what was missing there. And, and I know that um, I would not have been 
the kind of man who could have been married for 40 years. I'd never seen a marriage work, but now I've been married for almost 38 years, my wife, Kim, and it's directly in relationship to who Jesus is and how he's affected and changed my life. And so I look at it in really practical ways too. And I go, in every, in every expression of who I am, um, the genius of Jesus has actually made me a better human being. Mm. Let's just end with this. What are you curious about right now, Erwin? Well, I guess I'm most practically curious about how the message of this book will resonate with people across the world. Because I, I, I've seen already that um, talking about Jesus as a genius is a little unnerving for people who are Christians going, wait a minute, wait, no, he's not, a, he wasn't a genius, he was God. And I'm going, well, you know, if you said Jesus was compassionate, you wouldn't say, no, no, Jesus wasn't compassionate, he was God. And just because he's God doesn't mean he's disqualified in these other markers. And what I would say is, no, um, if you don't actually capture the wonder of his genius, you're going to miss so much about who he is. And so I, I'm really curious to see not only how this will affect the way we talk about Jesus going forward as those of us who believe, but I, I'm actually really curious to see how people who do, who do not believe in God, people who do not believe in Jesus, how they will uh, reframe and see Jesus through this fresh, fresh lens. So um, this to me is, is where my mind and my heart is completely. Well, Erwin, grateful for you personally and uh, for the disruptions and the way that you have violated my and others' view of reality. And I pray that you continue to violate on, my friend. Appreciate you, your voice for the church. And uh, I pray that this uh, book moves people, people who know Jesus, people who don't yet. Jesus, the genius. Thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Alan. And uh, enjoy Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm.